You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. I'd invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians 3, beginning to read at verse 1 and reading through to 4, verse 6. Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its Creator. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything. And do it not only when their eye is, is on you and to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for his wrong, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful, and pray for us, too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, for which I am in chains. 
Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Please turn with me to the Belgian Confession, Article 24. We believe that this true faith, worked in man by the hearing of God's Word and by the operation of the Holy Spirit, regenerates him and makes him a new man. It makes him live a new life and frees him from the slavery of sin. Therefore, it is not true that this justifying faith makes man indifferent to living a good and holy life. On the contrary, without it, no one would ever do anything out of love for God, but only out of self-love or fear of being condemned. It is therefore impossible for this holy faith to be inactive in man. For we do not speak of an empty faith, but of what Scripture calls faith expressing itself through love. This faith induces man to apply himself to those works which God has commanded in His Word. These works produce, proceeding from the good root of faith are good and acceptable in the sight of God since they are all sanctified by His grace. Nevertheless, they do not count toward our justification. For through faith in Christ we are justified, even before we do any good works. Otherwise, they could not be good any more than the fruit of a tree can be good unless the tree itself is good. Therefore, we do good works, but not for merit. For what could we merit? We are indebted to God rather than He to us for the good works we do, since it is He who works in us to will and to act according to His good purpose. Let us keep in mind what is written. So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. Meanwhile, we do not deny that God rewards good works, but it is by His grace that He crowns His gifts. Furthermore, although we do good works, we do not base our salvation on them. We cannot do a single work that is not defiled by our flesh and does not deserve punishments. Even if we could show one good work, the remembrance of one sin is enough to make God reject it. We would then always be in doubt, tossed to and fro without any certainty, and our poor consciences would be constantly tormented if they did not rely on the merits of the death and passion of our Savior. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, what does the Apostle Paul mean when he says, set your mind not on earthly things, but on things that are above, on heavenly things? What does that mean? That we only think about spiritual things and we can never have an opportunity to be engaged in our daily work of, of business or farming or teaching or whatever it might be, of gardening, of enjoying God's creation. Do we need to neglect this earth? have contempt for it, reject it, and only think spiritual thoughts? Do we need to be like Simon Stylites and sit on, sit on a post 30 feet in the air in order to fulfill this command of the Apostle Paul? No. The things of earth does not simply mean physical things. does not simply mean the things of this creation. 
But it means, as we read in verse 9, the old self in, in contrast to the new self. And in verse 5 through 7, that we put to death whatever belongs to our earthly nature. That is, everything that goes against God's law. Everything that does not, is not consistent with the rule of heaven, with the reign of God, with the kingdom of God, with belonging to the kingdom of heaven, being citizens of a new order. What Paul is speaking of is that the power of the age to come has entered into our world, entered into our lives in Jesus Christ. We belong to a new order, a new kingdom. We live in this present evil age that is dominated by the rule of Satan, dominated by a desire only to do what goes against God, being uh, only living uh, in a way, in such a way that uh, we are against everything God stands for. That's the 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 present evil age in which we live. But we live as those who are hidden with Christ in God, and we are a new creation. We belong to a new age. We belong to Jesus Christ. So we live as members of a kingdom which is in this world, but not of this world. It is basically what Christ teaches us to pray. Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That the life of heaven will become more and more a reality in our own lives. This is what it means. That we are a new creation amidst the ruins of the old. Of what the sin and disobedience of our first parents have brought. So life in this new kingdom is radically new. It's antithetical to our sinful flesh, to, to the old man. It's antithetical to the kingdom of this world. Paul uses the imagery of clothing, of putting off and, and putting on. A complete change. We look completely different. Not simply in our hearts are we different, but in our lives, with our hands, in our families, in our churches, in the workplace. Paul's Gospel logic is this way. Since... You have been raised with Christ since you are a new creation, since everything that is that I have spoken already in Colossians, all of in, in my letter, all of these promises of being transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, of being reconciled with God, of having all the wisdom, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in Jesus Christ. Since all of this is true of you, that you have this great gift of reconciliation with God, since that is true, since Christ is going to come back for you and bring you to glory. Therefore, walk in newness of life. And that order is very important. It is the order that we also see emphasized here in the Belgic Confession. A couple of weeks ago, I considered justification in our congregation. That, of course, is the two articles before, 22 and 23, talking about how we are accepted freely by God only on the basis of Christ's righteousness. His finished work. Nothing we can offer can ever earn our acceptance before God. It is grace all the way down. It is free. Freely given. Freely received. Through faith. 
And now the Belgian Confession emphasizes, but this faith, because it's free, doesn't mean it's cheap. Doesn't mean now we can live however we want. It is impossible for this faith not to also produce a new life. To change us. To cause us to be born again. That we have a, we are a new person with new desires, new loves, an entirely new direction. We're no longer under the reign of sin, even though we still sin, even though we still sometimes love to sin, yet we, we don't want that. We hate that we love to sin. And we long to, to more and more know Jesus Christ and live for Him. So even though we still feel the, feel the pull of sin, we're no longer under its power. If we were under the reign of sin, we would never ever want to do what God wants us to do. And since this is true, and we are called to live this radical, this radically new life, these two things are inseparable. God freely accepts us on the basis of Christ's righteousness. But then He also transforms our lives. Any gospel that declares salvation without life transformation, without changed lives, is an entirely other gospel from the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we'll consider this afternoon the radical newness of the Christian life. First of all, its source. Secondly, its motivation. And thirdly, its necessity. Firstly, its source. The source of our new life and obedience and good works is nothing other than, is no one other than Jesus Christ our Lord. We are commanded to put to death in Colossians 3. Put to death, to put off, and then to put on the new life. Put off sin, put on good works. But these commands are not ultimately a matter of reaching into our inner self, pulling up our bootstraps, summoning all of the strength that we have, believing in ourselves and then going to it. No, it is all and only in Jesus Christ. This refrain comes back to us again and again throughout Paul's letter to the Colossians. We can see it, for example, in 1 verse 28 and 29. We proclaim Him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. And in 2 verses 6 and 7, so then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in Him, rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. Again and again, and we could multiply the examples throughout the New Testament of being in Christ. Galatians 2 verse 20 is perhaps the most beautiful, most succinct word in which we see that it is no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. We've been crucified with Christ, says Paul. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. What are we speaking of? We're speaking of union with Jesus Christ. Covenantal union with Him. That the Holy Spirit grafts us 
into his body. He is our head. We are the members. He is the vine. We are the branches. Apart from him, unless we're connected to him, we have no life in us. Union with Christ is not as though we are somehow absorbed into the Godhead and, and become, and become God. It's not for the purpose of becoming Him, but it's for the purpose of becoming like Him. It's a covenantal relationship. It's by faith in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so, Belgian Confession Article 24 starts with, we believe that this true faith and this true faith is defined as, if you go back to Article 22, listen carefully, we believe that the Holy Spirit kindles in our hearts an upright faith which embraces Jesus Christ with all His merits, appropriates Him, and seeks nothing more besides Him. In other words, all of our salvation is found in Him. Not only our acceptance before God, but also this new life. Both are blessings received in Christ. Christ imputes His righteousness to our accounts, but He also imparts His righteousness. He puts it on our bank accounts, but then He also hands it to us that, and, and, and He continually, slowly but surely makes us, causes us to be more righteous in our living. And so in Belgian Confession, Article 24, halfway down that first column, we read this. These works, two-thirds of the way down, these works proceeding from the good root of faith are good and acceptable in the sight of God since they are all sanctified by His grace. They do not count toward our justification. For through faith in Christ we are justified even before we do any good works. Continuing on to the second paragraph, Therefore we do good works, but not for merits. For what could we merit? We are indebted to God rather than He to us. For the good works which we do, for the good works we do, since it is He who works in us to will and to act according to His good purpose. Let us keep in mind what is written. So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. Meanwhile, we do not deny that God rewards good works, but it is by His grace that He crowns His gifts. Notice here, there is no opportunity for us to boast. Because first of all, God works these works in us. If there's any evidence of grace, any evidence of holiness, any evidence of righteousness in our lives, He put it there. He's the one who made us alive. He's the one who is working within us. Yes, we have to do. Yes, we have to work and strive. We're commanded to do that. But at the end of the day, we read in Ephesians 2 that we are God's workmanship to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. He's the one at work within us. We are His Holy Spirit's workshop. And everything we have done, we will say God prepared that. He ordained that for me from eternity past. 
And only therefore does God receive them as good and acceptable. Think of this. God looks at the good works that we do as they proceed from true faith in Christ. What does he see? He sees his work. He sees this, this, this man, this woman, this boy, this girl is under my construction. And I'm pleased as I see my work in him or in her. And he receives our works as they are accepted. As they are sanctified, sorry, by his grace. So first God works them in us. He's the source. But then he's also the source in that he is the one who cleans them up in Jesus Christ. The service that we render to him through faith in Christ are accepted only on the basis of our new standing that we have because of Christ's finished work. We stand in grace. We are washed in His blood and our works are as well. In themselves, our works are stained with sin. There's not a thing we do that doesn't have some kind of half-heartedness or some kind of sinful motivation or sinful taint to it. But God accepts them in His beloved Son as we look to Jesus Christ. And they are covered in His blood and purified in His Spirit. Now think of it. First, God works in, works these things in us. And He receives them as they are washed in the blood of Christ because in and of themselves they're, they're, they're pretty imperfect, pretty impure. Not much to them. In fact, they're like filthy rags, says Isaiah. So He washes them in the blood of Christ as we do them in faith. And then, on top of it all, what do we read in the Belgian Confession? He rewards them. He crowns His gifts. He did it. He washed them. And now He rewards them as well. It's all it's grace all the way down. He is the source. He's the author. He's the perfecter. He he puts those works in us and then He rewards them as well. He alone is the source. We may never, ever have any room for boasting, think we're thinking we're better than others, thinking that we've somehow we somehow because of our cleanliness or because of our big family, because of our well behaved kids, or because of anything that we've done for the church, somehow think that now God owes us one. We never ever, ever say so many years I've served you, God, or so many years I've, I've served you, brother, sister, and this is the thanks I get. Anytime we say that, it demonstrates to us we have a profound misunderstanding of who it is who works within us. It is not we ourselves. It is God. He is the source. Secondly, this newness of life has a brand new motivation. There are four things I want us to consider. Why do you do good works? Why do you serve the Lord? Why do you obey Him? Because there are many wrong reasons that we can have. God will not accept those wrong reasons. The first proper gospel motivation is we walk in newness of life because we are a new creation. We become what we are in Jesus Christ. We are accepted in Him. We are considered holy 
in Him. And so now, God says, now become that. This is what Paul says in the beginning of Colossians 3. Since you have been raised with Christ, now walk like it. Act like it. You're a new creation. Start living like it. Doesn't make any sense for us to say, wow, I've, I've been saved from hell. I've been saved from an eternity of, of suffering and damnation. I've been saved from a lifetime of meaningless, aimless living. Only to live in sin? Only to continue to enjoy the, the, the lusts of the flesh? No, our motivation to live for God is because we belong to Him. Because we've been raised with Christ. We are a new creation. The second motivation is love for God. The Belgic Confession says, Therefore, it is not true that this justifying faith makes man indifferent to living a good and holy life. On the contrary, without it, no one would ever do anything out of love for God. Listen, but only out of self-love or fear of being condemned. The authors of the Belgian Confession knew the human heart. They know. They knew the human heart. Your heart, my heart. Do you ever think, do you ever ask yourself, why am I doing what I'm doing? Is it out of love for God? Or is it out of self-love or fear of damnation? Proper motivation for good works. Love for God because of what He's done, but also for who He is. We want to please Him. Here is the Holy God. Here is the God who alone truly satisfies, who made us, who purchased us, who died for us. We want to live for Him. Or we can do it out of self-love. What does that mean? Self-love. Well, we do it. We, we serve God. We come to church. We do our thing because we want to get something from Him. We do it for ourselves, our reputation before others, for our wives, for our children, for our brothers and sisters in, in, in the church, for our, our neighbors. We want to look good. We want to look respectable. So we want to change. We want to feel good about ourselves. Are these your motivations? Those motivations will not get us very far, certainly not ultimately very far. Or we can serve God out of fear of damnation, fear of condemnation. We don't want to get punished. Perhaps you're scared stiff of hell and that's the only reason you serve Him. Think of the vast difference between a son who obeys his dad because he is scared of what his dad will do if he doesn't. He is scared of what his dad's going to do to him if he dares to disobey dad. He's afraid. Now think of the difference between that and a son who doesn't want to disobey dad because he doesn't want to disappoint him. He doesn't want to feel distant from him. And when he gets a spanking, He's sorry, not because the spanking hurt, but because of what this caused between between him and, and his dad. 
Think of the vast difference between those two. Now, how about yourself and the Lord Jesus Christ? Why does your sin frustrate you? Is it because it puts a distance between you and the Lord Jesus Christ? Or is it because it makes you feel bad? Because it makes you look bad? Because you're afraid of, of damnation. A new, made of, new motivation is to do things out of love for the Lord. I want us to note a few practical ways in which Paul calls us to this kind of love for God motivated obedience. 3 verse 13. Here's a hard one. The end of 3 verse 13. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Forgiveness costs a lot. We need to swallow a lot of pride. And we'll, but we'll never truly be able to forgive unless we remember of all that God forgave us. There's our motivation. Christ bled and died and went through hell. And this all, all before I had done anything good, but only rejected Him and rebelled against Him. And He forgave me. Forgive as Christ forgave you out of love for Jesus. Or 3 verse 18, for wives... Wives, submit to your husbands. That's in itself is a, is a, is an impossible command, isn't it? Submit to my husband. Do you know what kind of guy he is? You really think I'm going to respect this man? But Paul gives us a whole new motivation as is fitting in the Lord. Don't just look at your husband. Understand that you do this for the Lord Jesus Christ. And then everything changes. Then you can look behind, beyond your husband, behind his foibles and his failures. You can see the Lord Jesus Christ and his love for you. And of course, the same goes for husbands. Paul doesn't explicitly say it here, but he does in Ephesians 5. We're to love our, li- love our wives as Christ loved the church. If they aren't respecting us, can remember, first of all, well, what kind of respect do we think we deserve? But secondly, are we loving them? As Christ loved the church. And this goes on. Children, obey your parents. Why? As is well-pleasing to the Lord. This is what we are trying to do with our two young children. To keep on telling them, don't obey mom and dad because mom and dad are such great people. But because... Your Heavenly Father put us in this position to lead you to Him. To show you Him. Or servants. Verses 22-23. to Serve your masters. You struggle with joy in your work. Are you always trying trying to find a way to bang some extra hours to, to rip your boss off a little bit here, a little bit there? And when he's around, then you work as hard as you can. But when he's not around, then you, you laze around a little bit. Is this true of you? Then remember, don't do this for him. You do this for the Lord Jesus Christ. Not serving men, but serving him. 
That's our second motivation. Love for God. Recently, I read a book called The Whole in Our Holiness by Pastor Kevin DeYoung. And something in there struck me. And I say this especially for the men, also for the ladies, but especially for the men here. So we think about doing things out of motivation, uh, motivated by love for God. He goes back to this promise we receive in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Do you want to see God? Do you love Him? Do you know? Do you believe that He is your satisfaction? Then here's what Reverend DeYoung suggests. He says, when you drive by a scantily clad woman and you're tempted to take that second lingering look, he says, I tell myself, I want to see God. I want to see God. What is this short, fleeting, momentary, sick pleasure of committing adultery in my heart? What does that compare to fullness of joy and eternal pleasures? with God forevermore. What does that compare? I want to see God. Love for Him. We can all think of these examples in our lives where we're running after all kinds of other sinful pleasures. When we really want to see God. The third motivation is God's reward. He does reward in grace the work that, the, that we do. He blesses faithfulness. He does bring consequences to our lives because of our sin. And when we walk with the Lord, as the song goes, in the light of the word of His Word, what a glory He sheds on our way. He, he rewards grace with more grace. And then finally, fourth one is duty. This is what we're called to. Sometimes, we do things for God at a service to Him simply because it's right. I know, you know, that in the Christian life, certainly not always, where we are overwhelmed with this spontaneous desire that's just overflowing out of us, that we love God so much that all we ever want to do is serve Jesus. If that's the way we had to do everything, we wouldn't do a whole lot of good works. Sometimes we have to beat our bodies to make them our slaves and we have to say, I will do this because I love the Lord. And even though I know my love is so weak and even though right now I don't feel like do, like doing this, this is what's right. And as we do it in that perspective, the Lord will also increase love in our hearts. It's okay to talk about duty in their Christian life. Today is not very popular. Many will say, ah, that guy just does everything because he has to. He just does everything because he thinks it's right. It's a joyless duty for him. But does duty always have to be joyless? Can it not also be a labor of love that we do it because God said it? And we want to do what's right to please Him. These are four. We can, we can mention a number of others. These are four motivations. Because of who we are, because we are a new creation, out of love for God, because of God's rewards, because it's our duty. 
And the Belgian Confession brings out Luke 17.10. When, when it's all said and done, we say we're unprofitable servants. We've only done our duty. Nothing more. And finally, the necessity of this radically new life. Good works are necessary. Not as the basis or the ground for being made acceptable in God's sight, but as the results of this new relationship that we have with Him. Faith is the root. Good works is the fruit. Getting right with God is entirely and only dependent upon faith in Jesus Christ. It's only based upon His imputed righteousness. But the faith that joins us to Christ and makes us right with God is a faith that works itself out in love, says the Belgian Confession. On the last day, God will not acquit us because our works were good enough, but He'll look for evidence that our confession wasn't phony. He will sort through our lives. He will open up those books. He will look at the heart. He will look at our motivations. He will look at the things we did in secret. He will look at the things that we thought. He will look at the things that we did to our wives and to our children and to our co-workers and to our business partners and so forth and so on. He will look at it all. Because these works are necessary as the result of faith. If they aren't there, we don't have this newness of life. Neither can we claim to be saved. Neither can we claim to belong to Jesus Christ. Because the two must and will go together. In my denomination in the United Reformed Church, it's become a bit of a bit of a pattern in, in some circles. To say, ah, we, from the pulpit, we don't want to tell people what to do. That's works righteousness. We just preach justification by faith alone, justification by faith alone, and, and, and the rest will sort itself out. But that's certainly not biblical. Good works are necessary. And the Bible is full of commands, of calls to faith and repentance, of calls to newness of life, to put off, to put on, to live in such a way that we look like we are what we confess we are to be. Or, or, or what we confess we are. It's popular in our, in many evangelical circles, in many Christian circles to say, wow, Christianity isn't about rules, it's about a relationship. Religion is rules. But Christianity is a relationship with Jesus. Well, in one sense, if what that means is rules don't save us, that we can't have a relationship with rules, we can only have a relationship with the Lord, that's true. But Christ Himself clearly said, I have come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He's given us His commands as the rules the guy in our relationship with Him. Those rules are important. They are commanded of us. Those commands He has given to us, He will also open up the book of our lives and see if we 
sincerely sought to follow them. They are necessary. Without newness of life, without the evidence of, of good works in our lives, properly motivated, we've no right to say, we've no, no freedom to say, no confidence to be able to say that we're truly saved. We do have to ask ourselves. We should hear. Even as, 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 as the faithful, as those who, who are the congregation of Jesus Christ. Are you born again? Are you new? Are you changing? Is this true for you? Am I fighting sin? Or am I just hanging around in it? Because if we don't take this seriously, how will we expect Christ to take us seriously when we stand before Him one day? We don't want to hear Him say, I never knew you. You loved me? Really? I didn't know that. I didn't see that. But we also need to remember, and I close with this, God is far more merciful than I am. God's far more merciful than any of you are. Far more merciful than we are to our kids or to one another. And even as we can beat ourselves up and think, oh boy, do, am I ever a failure in so many ways. Again, we need to remember it's not the quality of our faith. It's not the quality of our good works. It's not our good works that make God accept us. No, we cannot do a single work as the Belgian Confession says, that it's that is not defiled by our flesh and does not deserve punishment. Even if we could show one good work, the remembrance of our one sin is enough to make God reject it. This is not to put big question marks over our heads. This is not to create doubt in our hearts. But it is to say and be honest with ourselves, this is true of me. And if I don't think it is, or not, at least not what it ought to be, and that's true for all of us, where do we go? We don't say, okay, now I'm going to pull up my bootstraps. No, we, we do go to the cross. Where it was all done. Fully, finally, forever, to the finished work of Jesus Christ. To go back to that gospel for us. His forgiveness full and free. To go back to our head, to go back to the vine and say, Jesus Christ, make me new. You see, God gives us demands. The gloriousness of the gospel that makes this gospel absolutely different from every other religion in the world is that God is the only God who not only paid the penalty for breaking those demands, but He also gives us what He demands to those who come to Him in faith. Amen. Shall we pray? Almighty Heavenly Father, You are good and gracious. We praise You for the Gospel of a new life. We pray that if there are any here who are 
in the throes of unbelief or sin, that you would free them, put a new desire, new love in their hearts. And for each and every one of us, may you increase and we decrease. Father, we confess that we spend so much time rooting around in the garbage bin of, of life. So little time in the things of God and the things that truly satisfy. Would you forgive us and would you also by your Holy Spirit renew us that as we lay everything on the altar, so also we would grow in our delight for you and our love for you that we might already begin now to say that by faith I can see God and one day I long more and more to see Him face to face. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.